This is uh, Richie Wexler of Vintage Annals Archive. I'm happy to announce that we are. This is a new series we started uh, called Building Momentum. M O O M E N T U M. A very unofficial How to Dance in Ohio podcast for you. For those who don't know uh, what How to Dance in Ohio is, it was a documentary made by Alexander Alexander Shiva uh, about. Um, essentially a social skills program teaching young adults how to prepare for a dance. Uh, that then got turned into a musical that was um, in Syracuse running for about a year, if I'm not mistaken, and then it came to Broadway. Um, and it, unfortunately it is now over, but I know something is something next, whatever happens next is going to be amazing. Uh, this was such a groundbreaking process in terms of Accessibility. I mean, there was an entire accessibility team that made sure everybody felt at home in terms of rehearsing uh, everything they needed to be their best. And everyone involved got that treatment. Um, you know, I'm very sad this is over, but I have to also celebrate the fact that this this changed lots of lives. It changed my life. I Before this time, I would identify as uh, neurodivergent, or on the spectrum, and I was afraid to identify as autistic because of just stigma and this and that. Um, and this really gave me the bravery to do that, of just how real people were uh, that I got involved with, that I got to talk to. We have about 13 interviews now. We're going to hopefully uh, add some. Um, I really have to thank, before I start, Sammy Canold, uh, the director, really went out of their way to help me out with this process. Uh, I also have to really thank um, Ray Esposito, again, was a really big help in negotiating uh, this world. I had not really done uh, much press on an active musical, and I needed a lot to learn, and those two parties were very helpful. And also, Arthur Castro, my editor, uh, really stepped it up. We, you know, once we found out the show was closing, I had to kind of, I wanted to push all this out so that way people knew the story. Um, we've got about 13 interviews with cast members, access team, the director. Um, uh, we're going to be speaking soon with Dr. Amigo, a, a wonderful man uh, who started all this. Um, and also uh, Alexander Shiva, who directed the, the documentary. And hopefully I'm going to keep adding people as this thing keeps having life. So please share. Um, these are longer form interviews. I didn't do a lot of extra editing. Uh, I wanted this to be very real and authentic, and there's some times that I'm sure I'm not making a lot of sense. Uh, generally, when you're editing and interviewing so much in such a little time, things get a little, uh, a little lost in exhaustion. Uh, but I really wanted to honor the people by not changing too much. We did do a little bit of editing, but mostly these are as is. I didn't want to fix anything. I wanted people to be who they were and not really, you know, not change that in any way. Uh, so, you know, you're getting a very real, authentic, um, we're not heavily editing, fixing everyone's like or um, because I really wanted something real. And I wanted to honor the people I talked to, and I didn't want to change their words in any real way. So thank you so much. Again, this podcast um, is called Building Moment Momentum, um, a very unofficial How to Dance in Ohio podcast. I named it that for a few reasons. One, I wanted to kind of cater to younger, like 14, 15-year-old 
uh, folks uh, that are autistic to kind of, you know, dig into this, the interviews. Um, and I also didn't want to get sued. So I was very clear that this was not an official thing in any way. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, again, we're going to be, we were putting out a few of these at a time. Um, as of the 12th, we will have about four or five more and we'll be adding them over the week and then possibly more. Depending on what happens next with the musical, um, we will be adding some more. And all I got to say is how well I was treated by everyone involved, how, admi how much I admire the cast, the crew, what they've gone through, what they built. I mean, this is one of the most beautiful things. And again, as someone who's autistic myself, as someone who's a special ed teacher, as someone who's loved musical theater since I was a kid, um, this was just something I really had to, I had to really get involved with. And I, I can't, I'm, I'm so proud of uh, what I got to do here, but more that I got to know all the people I got to know. I, these conversations were some of the most memorable ones I've had. Uh, I just want to thank everybody involved. So please again, share, enjoy, um, and again, we have 13 episodes, hopefully more, and we'll be posting as we go along. Welcome to Vintage Annals Archive, episode 77, as well as it functions as uh, episode 10 of Building Momentum, a very unofficial podcast about the Broadway, Broadway musical How to Dance in Ohio. We have Ava X. Rigglehop, who is a writer, autism consultant, actress, public speaker, and advocate for disability and autism representation in the entertainment industry. Uh, they worked uh, as the autistic creative consultant for uh, this musical. Um, it was great to talk to them and really learn about their world, uh, learn about how being autistic really for them is a positive uh, event that helped them really help create this piece of work in a lot of different ways to make sure everybody was welcome and was made at home. Uh, and they were really great to talk to. I really enjoyed speaking to them uh, for the podcast. So enjoy. I'm curious on, you know, what your path was for you, if you're comfortable sharing that in terms of your own understanding uh, were you, you know, was that something that you understood as a child? Was that something more recent? I don't know if, you know, if you're comfortable. Ah, yes. Um, no, yes. Yeah. So I was diagnosed um, later. Like a lot of the people actually, you wrote to me that you injured later. I think a couple of other people of our cast um, have. And that is really common for especially women and non-binary people. Yes. Primarily, um, historically and still focuses on boys and like white and even to be more specific, white boys and how they present because um, some of the first doctors were like over in Germany and Austria and um, their pool was an all boys pool. And so then the traits that most people think of as autistic um, more or less oftentimes show up like all the time, not all the time, you can't say all the time for anyone um, on the autism spectrum, but you know, so girls tend to have some as different types of traits or the same um, sometimes issues come up and affect us differently, right? There's this amazing um, definition of autism that I'll just like paraphrase by the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. And it kind of goes on to say, you know, it's a developmental disability that affects every facet of our lives. We think differently, move differently, process our senses differently. Um, 
sometimes need help with um, basic aspects of living that other non-autistic, non-disabled people might not need help with. But under those categories, right, of thinking differently, processing our senses differently, how that um, affects everyone, I say, for lack of a better word, is different. And sometimes from person to person, day to day, you saw the show, as we say, you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. So um, the research on women and girls and non-binary, even like people of color, is just emerging. So um, yeah, so it kind of made sense that um, I was diagnosed later. Also, I was adopted from China, so my background wasn't as known as someone who was like, you know, has biological parents and stuff. So a lot of that, um, some of the issues that we had and uh, misunderstanding some of the doctors, um, you know, chalked it up to, well, she was adopted, so we don't know her background, and that could be X, Y, Z. Um, and and uh, yeah, but it actually was a theater teacher at um, a really cool summer program at Brown University that I don't think exists anymore. But that brought the um, he you know has had many different types of students. And long story short, he brought the idea up to my mom if she ever thought that I was on the spectrum. Um, and that kind of started us down, started her, and then later when she brought it up to me down a path of looking into you know you google autism you get most of the traits for boys but you google like autism and women you get different types of websites different types of checklists and help and then eventually we um forced my school to get me a um, official diagnosis and that really did help um answer a lot of questions of you know why sometimes it felt like and my mom and i were re are really close she's a single mom uh, but still why it felt like there was still sometimes a divide between us, why we sometimes struggled to understand each other and why I struggled to make friends, etc. Um, and so it really um, it added, as I say, another facet to my like already intersectional identity, um, being like a Chinese Jewish transracial adoptee. That's um, a lot. But, I don't mean yeah. to make, I don't mean to make light of it, but that, that's that's a lot. That's a, that's a lot no, to no. have to um break down in understanding why people are either maybe better to you or not as good or just relating yeah, to people you know yes, yeah and um and while yeah it did really lead me into a time period of you know questioning a lot of what i thought i knew about myself i didn't know anything about disability and autism and um but it also uh, eventually led me to like talking to you today of carving out a niche for myself in my love of the arts and entertainment that I had even before I knew about this um, and melding it with um, like a newfound passion of inclusion and accessibility um, and authentic autism representation. I mean, it's so nice. It, it, it really warms my heart to just know how much care that went into this because I just feel like you don't see this kind of thing often. You don't yeah. see people handling these kinds of differences in a way that is like real and honest and caring. It's just, it seems like a lot of it is more legal so they don't get sued versus like, I'm going to make sure these people feel at home. And it, it was, it's really amazing how, you know, I know, you know, I know there's a whole team here, um, but I, I'm just, it's really impressive. And it's really nice, especially as a, as a teacher, um, special ed to just know that like, yeah. So I want to go back and the, the organization you mentioned, can you explain uh, it was the uh, autism advocacy? What was the group you mentioned before? Can you tell me um, about this group real quick? I haven't like officially worked with them, 
um, but they are a really great and um, big nonprofit, like founded by and for autistic people. Their work centers autistic voices and autistic people, not just children, autistic adults. And because they're founded by, um, I believe like Julia Bascom is one of the co-founders um, or founder of this organization. Um, they um, just have such amazing work and uplift different people. And um, they're just a really neat organization. And so uh, their explanations of things such as autism or support needs and stuff like that come directly from um, the perspectives of autistic people who, um, who not only are autistic, but also of course, like me in their own, um way not all of them are in entertainment some policy some etc um you know um are experts in their fields and talking about it and getting back to what you're saying i didn't mean to cut you off i just didn't want to forget that but you were talking yeah. about like again like you know uh, i um you were thanking me for just noticing that i'm just curious on you know just your reflection on on how that came to be um and then we'll go somewhere else but yeah i'm just you know tell me about this you know uh what that process was like what it was Walk me through a little bit of your of how you got involved and uh, either your part or other people's part in how you how you I mean, I'm assuming you're also communicating with a lot of the actors because it's not just like a one size fits all and I'm just wondering what it was like to kind of what the process was like for you and your team. Definitely yeah um i can definitely i'll start off with how I got involved and then um, like my role and stuff like that. So um, I got involved just um, like over about two and a half years ago in 2021. Um, I was connected to the producers through the show's director of community engagement, Becky Leafman. Um, she is also the co-founder of CoLab, a nonprofit theater organization for people with developmental disabilities in New York. And she knew the producers. And she and I worked on another project for the Ruderman Family Foundation, which is another great foundation, um, nonprofit, that um, they're a large Jewish family and they uplift um, disabled creators in the entertainment world and authentic um, representation. More in the TV and screen, like they go to the Oscars and stuff like that, um, but they, they do some pretty cool work. Um, and so back in 2021, um, the producers asked Becky to recommend um, autistic people to consult on the show and she recommended me. Um, because in addition to casting authentically, the producers and the director, Sammy Cannell, they really wanted to bring more autistic voices behind the stage. And that was really one of the big details. Yeah, that told me that this team is dedicated to doing the work of, as you mentioned, like creating accessible and inclusive production. Yes. Um, I want to go back. I want to go back a little bit and, turn, and talk about, while I have you, how you see autism playing out differently for females or people you know or lgbtq or you know the community, the community you're, you're part of i'm curious how it plays out for, for if we can start with female that would be best but also other disenfranchised groups that you feel like it plays out differently and and just i'm just curious on that experience if you're you're combining your own experience or what you've learned i'm just you know i, I don't know how that you know uh I, I do feel like having worked in the field i've seen a lot more male uh, students than anything else, but I'm just curious what it looks like for other people. Yes, so I can only speak more or less as an expert from my own autistic experience um, and also pull in a couple of different tidbits that I've heard from people. But like in general, I think, and this is also what research 
says as well, the reason why um, like autistic girls and like adult women aren't diagnosed as much, one of the main reasons sometimes is because autistic people, autistic women tend more to mask, which is like hide their autistic traits, whether they know they're autistic or not, right? So like um, stimming, right? Like so vestibule um, stimming, right? Like they, so they just kind of stifle stimming or they force themselves to make eye contact, even if it's uncomfortable, um, different types of things because they want to fit in. And um, I think society um, kind of pushes girls more to fit in, to stay in line, et cetera, to be social than boys, more or less. Right? The quirky boys sometimes gets a little bit more of a leeway, like, I don't know, the quirky or um, self-centered while girls definitely um, in my opinion, get more chastised for that types of like odd and behavior. So what you're saying is they're kind of taught to hide to not being they're not being recognized. Yeah, they want to they want to fit in. Everyone wants to fit in more or less. They want to have friends, but it's just like a different coping mechanism. And in additionally, sometimes people talk about that sometimes um, two different things like their special interests sometimes are seen as more traditional special interests for women or girls, right? Like it might be like horses or it might be like makeup or like, right? So they're like, oh, well, that's like, she's a girl, she likes horses and like fifth grade, like that's cool. Like while, you know, um, sometimes boys' special interests are like trains or how batteries work or something that's kind of like odd for like a five-year-old or a six-year-old. So the interests sometimes are just naturally different and they just kind of go more hidden because it seems like, well, no, she likes horses, that's like whatever. Um, so, and also because boys have sometimes, and sometimes it happens with girls too, and you can't say one or the other, but sometimes, you know, boys sometimes have more behavioral issues in school. So, right, like, so the boy that throws his shoes across the floor or the person, doesn't matter gender, is gonna get like noticed by a teacher that's gotta teach 25 students. Then the girl that sits in class in front or in back row, does as she's told, maybe gets good grades, like hands and doesn't ask questions or maybe ask, but like that behavioral issue is gonna get noticed and diagnosed sooner than a girl that maybe has more internal angst but isn't showing it through like aggressiveness or throwing shoes across the floor. Um, and so that's why people don't notice them, right? You don't notice what you don't wanna notice, an overloaded teacher, um, you know, et cetera. And that's just unfortunately the system, but also how the behavior happens. And girls sometimes tend to have more anxiety and depression if they're like neurodiverse, neurodivergent slash and or autistic, then um, that sometimes is kept more inside. So those three like things of like masking and sometimes not as many behavioral issues in school or in, at home and sometimes special interests um, being a little bit more aligned to what people think is like typical for girls um, and just not having as many, you know, sometimes girls just do. Like I naturally make more eye contact than other autistic girls and boys that I know. So it just shows up differently. Um, but those are some big pillars that people say is one of the reasons why, um, you know, um, girls are underdiagnosed, right? So like my pediatrician didn't believe that I was autistic because he was like, she makes eye contact and said she has friends. Like, boom, she's not autistic. Those are the two big like thingamajigs. But, you know, my doctor only saw me like barely once a year. Um, but some people, you know, are much more, it's not as much as people say a hidden disability for some autistic people. And sometimes those autistic people are white boys just by how they present slightly differently. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned trains. Yeah. I've never, I've like, I feel like nine, nine out of 10 boys I've met 
that are diagnosed as autistic love trains. Uh, yep. and, 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 and what I want to ask you to talk about the arts is I've also seen theater, I mean, being such a thing. I don't know if it's, you know, I mean, I wonder if it's the emotion. Um, I'm curious on how you got it. What arts or was theater one for you or was there, there's something I, I mean, I, I teach in an art school. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of getting both, you know, the, both those worlds at once. Cool, and yeah. I, I, you know, I fell in love with musical theater when I was like seven. And I'm just wondering for you, like, uh, is there something in your own personality or is there some common trait of folks on the with autism that the arts kind of speak to? And I'm wondering more how it plays out for you if you're okay talking about that. Yeah, um, I can answer both of them. And I think I'll answer the first one about why many people, many autistic people, like, if they like the arts, it, why it is. Um, so a lot of the times theater is scripted interaction, right? There's improv, but whatever. Um, and so you get to, in a, you know, artistic people more or less are sometimes much more accepting of people who are different. They want to meet people who are different to get different ideas and in synergy and stuff like that. So that's like the first bullet, right? Even in high school, even, you know, it's all the quirky kids in the theater or like visual arts and stuff, even music sometimes more. So. Um, but then when you go into theater, it's kind of like scripted interaction with um, a script where, as I joke, you know what you're going to say, you know, where else in life do you know what you're going to say and what someone else is going to say and how they're going to react to you. And you don't. And so, um, but autistic people like that, right? I ask you for questions ahead of time because we like making a script. It makes us feel more comfortable. We know what's going to be talked about um and we can practice it and it's um something that you can also write in rehearsal be like oh hey like that you know hi how are you didn't really go so well right we both felt kind of awkward about it like i didn't i forgot my line can we just start over again and in real life you can't just be like can we just start over again <laughs> like i messed up my first impression um and but in theater right that's encouraged to do outlandish stuff try new things and so um, you know, every single iteration, um, you know, this goes to one of your like future questions, but like I've watched the cast grow so much in confidence and so getting like better and better every single day iteration from like our reading. Oh my God. Like from our reading to like, just like Syracuse love 2023. Um, and to this year. Yes. So can you, can you, can you, I don't want to cut you up, but can you speak about that? I'd love to hear more about that process and I'm not, you don't necessarily have to point fingers at anybody, but I'm just curious on, uh, on, on the growth you saw through this process yes. with the, with the people you worked with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll finish my thought and, and it kind of ties in, um, that they get more and more confident because one of the reasons is, um, you're doing something every single day as we had some of our understudies step in one time in the rehearsal room, just like um, for Broadway, our director Sammy said like, and no pressure, you know, just for like one scene, because a couple of people were out that day. And she kind of joked with our understudies, like absolutely no pressure, like feel free to bring up your books and lyrics and stuff. You know, these people have been doing the same scene for two years, and it was a scene that had not changed. Um, and it's true. So, you know, autistic people like that. We like routine. We like um, knowing what's going to happen, right? Sometimes that's even why autistic people watch the same movies or TV shows over and over again, eat the same foods. It's because as you grow up, 
you realize whether you like it or not, autistic or not, like the world, there's so many unknowns. You can go outside and like slip on ice, like from something small or something big. So having that consistency in the arts of theater um, is something where people feel really safe and secure. And oftentimes, obviously you get to know pe the people that you're working with, so you trust them. And even though people sometimes actually in an interview with our cast, they're like, so like, they were interviewing Imani and uh, Madison Kopech and they were like, so, you know, sometimes people can't fathom like why autistic people sometimes struggle to go to the supermarket or talk like one-on-one -on -one to someone, but then you can go up on a Broadway stage and perform each night for, you know, a house that can fit over 1000 people. And they said a couple answers and, but one of the answers was like, because it brings us joy. Going to the supermarket doesn't bring us joy, right? They also are confident because they've practiced it before and and they know each other so it's it's all those different reasons and you you do gain through theater um many theater schools um and you know small studies have proven that theater does help autistic people learn social skills whether it's just because you're rehearsing with them and you're like all right guys like we're gonna do scene one now or you're like actually practicing your scene um as a different person um but obviously acting is you plus so it's still like you there um through trying out new things in like a safe environment. Um, so that's one of the reasons why autistic people who do like the arts, they really love it. And that's one of the reasons why, and one of the reasons why I liked it because you felt included and, but you also had this really cool world that you got to play in every single day that was the same. Yeah, I wanna um, reflect on something you said, which I think was really important. I'm wondering if, I don't know. I was I, I, I was uh, interviewing talking to someone I interviewed, and I was mentioning that like I don't know. I, you know, seeing seeing like high school kids perform as Tevya and uh -huh. talk you know talking about how their back is hurting never really fit for me. And I think I've always liked musicals that are that the people that are playing them are closer in age. I'm wondering if there's if there's a, if the safety we're talking about is through their through the interpretation of the character, if that provides safety, just like when someone just like when someone watches a movie, they might cry because it's not direct. It's not as it's not as personal. They can re relate through the character and it's not them. And I'm just wondering if you've seen for yourself or the actors, if that if playing a character while also being a character on this with autism felt that that's where the safety lied or not like it, in in having in not having it be part you but also part this character sure probably yeah i mean i can only speak for myself i haven't really asked the cast it, that question it's interesting but yes probably there is um it's always fun to step into someone else's shoes because you get to experience you know so these characters of course as you know are based on the documentary um uh, but then really infused with big aspects of our cast so it's kind of like a to like together um for example like desmond edwards some of the characters that he dresses up as when he plays remy are some real cosplays that he has done that he talked to about with the writers and so that's like cool right and so um and um amelia Faye does really like um you'll see her costumes are like rainbow colored and very bright and pink and her, her character from the documentary but also her real life character does often wear like um summary dresses and stuff like that so it was tailored for from the document right their names and stuff are from the documentary their storylines their interests are sometimes more aligned with the documentary but it really was throughout the years infused down to the key that the song is sung in um for the strengths of the actors so um 
And um, so, yeah, so of course there's like a fun distance there that you get to play in a different world as someone else, um, but also at the same time learning about yourself. And what was the process in drawing some of the person, drawing from their personal lives or who they were into then expanding on the on the characters? I'm curious on how that kind of played out, if you can, if you yeah. can speak on that. Um, well, I worked really closely with the writers, the book and lyrics writer, as they say in Broadway, Rebecca Greer-Malosik and the composer, Jacob Yandera, um, and also Sammy Cannell, um, definitely through like, um, once we got to Broadway, we were much less in the development phase. We were much more in like the technical phase. But from 2021 up until Syracuse and after, um, I worked really close with them on authentic autism representation. And um, so staying true to the amazing source material of the documentary, while also the documentary came out in 2015. And as you mentioned, so much like language and ideas and stuff has changed, right? Even like person with autism versus autistic person and stuff. and um, and so um, through my consulting work that I've done with a couple other nonprofits, um, I'll talk more about that in a sec, but to stay on the same train, um, I brought that knowledge. And so we talked about, you know, um, disability language and thinking about, you know, just because something works in a, you know, real life documentary, would it work or the same idea of it work? in a fictionalized scripted musical that already because it's a musical and fiction and like scripted there's a sense of like you know unless you're hanging around musical theater kids people don't just like bust out into song right there's already like a fictionalized aspect of like life there so and what you know so like but like what we want to say today in like 2023 for um about autism um that was said in the documentary but maybe also wasn't right so even like alexander shiva the documentary um creator said that through fictionalizing it it is cool because we were able to change some of the characters for example um in the original documentary there were no yeah in the original documentary there were no non-binary characters but right now we have one non-binary character and um does does character um can depending on the person be more or less non-binary as well but imani's character is 100% non-binary um, as Imani plays it. So, um, and it's written more that way for them. So it adds a layer of being able to add more inclusivity and different storylines that the documentary didn't have um, and to um, talk about autism through um, those storylines, but also add some different things. And, um, you know, sometimes one scene wasn't working because it kind of, felt a little strange in the moment and from directly pulled, but then the writers continued working on it. And then in the Broadway iteration, it was back in again in a different way that finally worked because they really liked it. Um, but at first it just wasn't right. It just wasn't working in the, in the exact way. And so then sometimes, you know, since I was virtual, but like in the rehearsal room as well, the actors, you know, they weren't asked hundred percent to do this, that it was always open to them, but obviously it's not their job to teach the cast to teach the crew um, and writers about autism. That's my job, along with a couple other people behind the stage, but they wanted to, to give their input. So when they could write, for example, the cosplay characters um, and and things like that. And it's interesting, I, I did write, like, I think when I, bef I don't know if it was before I interviewed Desmond or maybe Sammy, but I broke, I did a breakdown to try to connect the characters that were chosen to represent, ver you know, from the documentary, 
Um, and it was, it, you know, it, it, it was interesting, but it's definitely not uh, super clear. I mean, it's like, you know, I didn't know who Desmond, I didn't understand who Desmond was until the end of the documentary. And I, I was like, oh, okay, that's when they showed, they showed a, a photo album of cosplay. It's a smaller like, that, character in the documentary. Right, but it was, moved, but it's, it was interesting. Himself. Yeah, but it's really interesting kind of looking at that piece of it and trying to figure it out. And I also like that you all kind of you know didn't didn't feel how you had to be stuck in 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 recreating the documentary but you took yes. the best of it which i thought was really you know really really well really done yeah even way back before i joined like 2018 19 when they were talking to alexandra shiva and um even when hal prince was signed on and then he unfortunately passed um Alexander Shiva and I think Halpern said to Rebecca Grimalosek to feel free to have creative liberty of um, choosing what they wish to to make it into a musical. And some of my favorite, I mean, I'm a big documentary person because I, or like biopic even musicals because I mm -hmm. love when when the when the reality is the the is the um, when it's it's written from real life and I feel like this mm -hmm. fits into what I call the documentary musicals, which for me mainly are chorus line. And I don't know if you know the show, The Me Nobody Knows. No, I don't. Uh, it was it was written it was written um it was taken from a uh, I think in the seventies it was a teacher wrote a bunch of poems with a bunch of kids at a public school in New York and they turned it into a musical and it's really beautiful. It takes place from evening to the next morning. Um, oh, very sparse, cool. very mostly music, but chorus line too, like that was done with interviews. And I just love that. Mm -hmm. I think I'm attracted to this one because it's coming from real experiences. And I, I, I just happen mm -hmm. to like when things are based on reality a little more than in my art than others. Um, I want to get back into your, a little bit of your career and who you, and what you've done. I know you did some work. Um, uh, I, I did some research on uh, two shows, Ghosts, of, Ghosts and Molly McGee, Lou and the Bally Bunch. And I know you did some stuff with Kennedy Center and neurodiversity training. Uh, it said you were a fellow at Respectability. I'd like yes. to just know more about your how you came to this, um, what you like about being in this world, and just a little bit of that story, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. Um, first, thanks for doing your research in the entertainment and consulting space, a lot through what you referenced, um, Respectability, which is an amazing like disability, also disability-led nonprofit that is um, based in Washington, D.C., but also now has a really big growing branch in Los Angeles, their entertainment branch. And um, they, um, their founder actually just left. They have a new president, but um, their three buckets are um, Jewish and faith activism of, you know, ha reminding faith communities to include people with disabilities, and then um, a policy um, outreaching to people, um, they're nonpartisan, to remind people to um, like address your disabled voters and how voting, et cetera, can be more accessible to people and talking about the ADA um, and things like that. And their other more glamorous side that is like just uh, busting at the seams because it is um, much more, it is a big growing industry for consulting is entertainment and Hollywood consulting on authentic disability portrayals in TV and screen. So um, I got started with them through um, a lab that they have called, it's changed names over years, but like the Summer Entertainment Lab for Professionals with Disabilities. And I was their first virtual cohort during 2020. Their first like ever cohort was 2019 that took place in Los Angeles with small amount of people. They met in person, et cetera, um, even towards some studios, but then COVID hit and they had a virtual lab. So it was like this, but obviously like 20, something, maybe 15 people on a Zoom screen. 
and um, we met with each other um, and it was really great because it was the first time like for me um, and a couple other people to really meet and connect with other disabled filmmakers, disabled um, like artists in the entertainment space. Some of them um, at that time it was split into two groups like emerging and more advanced track. I don't know if they have that anymore now, but um, so some of the people were slightly older slash more advanced in um, like regardless of age there projects um, and have been working. So we learned from them. Um, and then a big section of it uh, was studio executives and um, indie people, et cetera, um, coming to talk to us about their work um, and how the studios are aiming to be more accessible, but also the studio executive asking us what they can do to be more accessible. Um, that was really great. And it was about six weeks. Um, and then after that, um, Lauren Applebaum, the now SVP of um, like entertainment and communications wing. Um, she reached out to me a couple like months later or something um, that she got a call from, as we just mentioned it, the ghost of Molly McGee, um, that they have an autistic character for season two and they are looking for a consultant. And she's like, would you like to consult with us with them? And I was like, yeah, um, of course, this was exactly what I wanted to do. And it was really great. Um, I got to, you know, um we had a first zoom with the writers and the producers and directors talking about um how to craft authentic you know disabled people and i talked about my experience respectability shared a couple of tidbits and things like that um and then we just more or less just read over every script that this character uh, jun chen was in she also was a api middle school woman so it was really neat um and um and told them about like um how to make her more authentic the writers were doing a really great job already um and some things were just like mm, don't know if she'd say that or how about you have her say this instead or even um for the animators um you know because if you don't hang out with people who are disabled and or autistic sometimes you just don't know what you don't know and it's not just how not just what someone says it's right like how someone says it or their physicality especially for autistic people so telling animators about like when she might for this character not all autistic people like when she might make eye contact when not when you know um how certain characters would move around or how she would move um and so that lasted until like it was just announced about a year ago finally animation takes forever um and so that was like one of my first projects with them and i um continued like doing similar work yeah i wanted to ask you <sighs> How do you get in touch with these characters? Is there some part? Of, are you able to? I mean, I'm assuming you have some art or maybe theater experience. Like, are you embodying these characters in a certain sense to understand how they operate, or is it more just trying to make sure it's not fake or forced? Yeah, kind of both, I suppose. Um, you know, when studios come to respectability, sometimes it's just with like an idea, um, and sometimes it's with already written scripts. Sometimes it's um, reviewing a movie that's already been made. Um, it just depends. We, of course, always want them to um, uh, come with us the earlier, the better, as you talked about our show being like um, very accessible and our show talks about accessibility at the forefront, not as an afterthought, because when it's just part of your process, you're able to um, just think of it as another part of your process and does it feel like this big expensive overhaul of what you already did because you're thinking about it as you go changes are being made for accessibility is being built in as you go instead of like backtracking. Yeah, so, it's, hard, it's hard to revamp it once you haven't designed it that way. And I think that's what's so 
what's so impressive about this process is it was thought of on every level, which, you know, I don't know, you know, I, I mean, I, I think a lot, I think a lot about what's considered like trauma informed education or trauma informed care. And it's just, it's simplicity in my, in my, my opinion, it's like, how do I make sure it's a safe space? It's the same kind of thought process I feel like is how do I make, how do I avoid upsetting all the, everyone I'm working with so that they, they feel comfortable and it, it's, you know, it's probably a little different, but it seems like it's based in the same place of like, how can we make sure it's safe? It seems like it's about emotional and physical uh, safety. It probably is. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you've read a couple other things. I think one or two other interviews we talked about it, but one of the biggest things that is, um, and one of the first things that me and Becky Leafman did was create an access needs survey that's sent out at the beginning of every iteration of rehearsals. So like, you know, way back in 2021, it was mainly just set to our cast and like small crew. Then as we grew, it sent even to the band, et cetera. And a couple of people, of course, like um, said, thank you so much for sending, like when we got to Broadway, we sent it to like everyone, regardless of being um, identifying as disabled or not. Simply asked people, you know, questions along the lines of what do you need to do your best work? Um, and a lot of our people, even if they weren't Broadway veterans, they have done a lot of theater before. So we asked them, right, like, how do you learn new material? What works for you in the rehearsal room? What doesn't work for you? Um, and we got a lot of great responses from people like, you know, we um, got like unscented soap in the bathroom. Um, you know, try not to eat in the rehearsal room because I don't like eating sounds. Uh, Rebecca Grimmelosic, the writer, always jokes. She's like, someone told me that they don't like whistling. And she was like, um, that's really helpful to know because I'll be in the rehearsal room and I'm a whistler, <laughs> like when she thinks she just whistles, I guess. So in, it was like really, um, and Becky Lee is like really great at about data. So she took it all and like synthesized it. It was like, okay, so like 50% of people said da 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 da. And um, then she sent it out to um, uh, the people that would be kind of managing the rehearsal room, right? Like, so the state managers and the director, they also did that survey, but she sent it out the cast didn't get the breakdown of like responses she sent it out to them and people like me so that we could see um what we can do right so like we put unscented soap in the bathroom paper towels if there was like a hand dryer um costumes once we got up there we told costumes not to wash clothes in a scented detergent even before stepping into the room just through like an email they already felt really like respected and seen um and it's something so simple but that broadway doesn't often do just ask like hey you're a human i'm a human like what can we do to help you we might not be able to address every single person's need but we are going to do our best and we're asking the question and it, it, um, it, it would seem like that would also create an environment where everyone's knowledgeable about things even just through mm -hmm. reading the questions which i think is really great i want to talk a little bit real quickly about like how did, how much did you, did you work more with like the light department with sound with design like were you working with the people designing the lights and, and the music how did that kind of play out for you yeah um so during especially during broadway um me and becky leafman and nicole d'angelo who make up the access team um there were a couple other people the access team has evolved over the years until it officially became the access team um a couple other people that were on it were also um, autistic, um, Liz Weber and um, Jeremy Ween. Um, and we helped during the um, teching of the show, especially for Broadway um, and Syracuse on um, working with, as you mentioned, the lighting and the sound. So we didn't design the lights or the sound, but we, um, especially um, 
Nicole D'Angelo and Liz Weber, both of them were in the rehearsal room every day uh, because Nicole is also with the music department and Liz was also with um, like production assistant. So um, they would um, sometimes in the moments tell or sometimes create a list to send out at the end of the day to um, Sammy Cannell, the director who then sent it on to the other departments with her tons of notes on um, sensory stuff. So we have a great disco ball. Um, sometimes that's just too shiny. So we matted it a couple of times. And then um, even even some like chair legs have been matted or um, one person brought up that whenever they see balloons on stage, they're worried that a balloon is gonna pop. So we put in our sensory advisory list that the balloon will not pop. Um, and, um, and so sometimes we'd say like, yeah, one light is shining into the audience or shining into the director's eyes. Can we, you know, change that or, um different sound cues um and so again that goes into um our show wanting to be um carefully designed with sensory sensitivities in mind um we acknowledge that you know no show can be a hundred percent accessible um to every single person but we don't have any strobe lights loud crashes um etc and we have a sensory advisory list for some things that could depending on you um be a little bit jarring um, and that's available online and in the theater through like QR. So, um, so yeah, so that's how we worked with the um, stuff like that, even the props and things like that. I want to segue a little bit more to kind of touchy feely stuff. Mm -hmm. I want to know, you know, about just emotion, you know, I don't know, moments, stories, uh, you know, see, you know, seeing the play for the first time, musical for the first time, like, you know, relationships with some of the people you work with. I just want to kind of get a little bit of, you know, hearing more about like, the rewards for all these things in terms of experiencing what you helped create yeah um it's been a really amazing process and i think um like i learned so much doing it and everyone um from the get-go was so committed as i mentioned to learning and seeing how um some of the processes of broadway and rehearsing um, can be changed for the better to be more inclusive and be more, um, Rebecca Grimalosic said in another interview about like um, prioritizing people's needs and rest. And sure, there's like always a grind, but like how to make that safer and more accessible for everyone. Um, because Broadway was not made for anyone who's autistic and or disabled. And um, it's kind of, we want to like open the gates to it, to a historically gate kept industry um and so it's been really amazing because a good chunk of our team has followed us um for about like you know just probably like three years now um obviously some of them have been working on it before three years um so for them it might be like five or six years um and seeing how everyone has just like really coalesced and learned from each other um and um hearing the feedback from our audiences about how they feel really seen and um accommodated um i think i'll still be like processing how this show has affected everyone including me for a long time um and it's just been really a neat experience to to meet all these amazing people and be able to have um including myself about like 25 broadway debuts right cast on and off stage of on such a show that means a lot to so many people so many people are autistic so and or 20, have, there like, are 25 different people that it was their first, is it, you're talking about the yeah. performers or are you talking about just people involved as well? Like everyone on and off stage. So like our director, our writer, our 
choreographer, our um, composer, like me, right? Like a couple other people, um, right? All of our autistic members, some of the non-autistic members. <laughs> we had a huge um, Broadway debuting team. Um, many of them, of course, have done professional work, but Broadway debut, yeah, we had a huge chunk of people that were our producers. That was their first um, lead producing a Broadway show. So um, our team, it's, um, a good chunk of our team is um, like connected through some way to the disability community, um, also to Ohio. Like I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Jacob Yandera is also from Ohio. Um, Rebecca Grimalowski also has grown up in Ohio for a bit. Um, so that was kind of funny. Um, and yeah, and that's how he found the musical, right? So his sister, um, she's like younger than me, but actually like when she was 18, she was also diagnosed autistic. So he was like researching and stuff. And he, his story is that like, he found this thing on HBO and he was like, hmm, how to dance in Ohio? Like from Ohio. So then he clicked on it and then, um, it was about autistic people and his sister at that time when he was watching it was also like recently diagnosed. And so he was like, like he started watching it. And of course it's really interesting when, I guess when you're in the music world, he saw, um, a musical in it, just like when Alexandra Shiva met someone from the center, saw a documentary in it. And that's kind of how he got the idea to, to write a musical. How does the world that was created from this musical, how does that, how does that change or play out over the next five years? Whether it's on Broadway, yeah. whether it's for the actors, whether mm -hmm. it's the, the, how the, where the play goes. I'm just curious on like what you see in all the, in all the amazing things you all created, what is going to be the, the ripple effect here? If, if you can answer that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we, I'll like go with your, I'll like go with your metaphor of ripple effect. I think we especially for broadway we like just threw the stone in so we're gonna like see the ripples like later right so just through the stone um yeah and um but i think we've already seen some of them immediately of the response so unfortunately of course i'm heartbroken about our um closing earlier than anticipated of course we all wanted the show to to um be able to have a really long run. But of course, as someone else said about something else, not this show at all, the math just isn't mathing. It's a tough world out there. Um, and and it takes people a while to, to get to know stuff. Um, and sometimes math just doesn't add up. Um, and, but at the same time, um, as many people have written, including myself, um, that it's still, that this show was made, right? Like that the Broadway powers that be, including our, producers, um, co-producers, and audience members like took a risk on a show that uplifts and highlights autistic voices, artists, and stories authentically. That is still so rare. Um, and that, as one of my friends said, um, for us to, from Syracuse to the next year transfer to Broadway is like quite quickly. Um, and so, and we also have a original Broadway cast recording album that's out forever. Um, yeah, it was, and I think you can pre, I think you can pre pre order the CD as well. Um, if anyone still has physical CDs, but um, oh yeah, that'd be cool. I'll tell the producers that. Um, I have no clue if he's in charge of that. Um, no, I know some people that like vinyl releases, um, but um, and so it really has, I think, shown that these types of stories can um, 
can make it in a commercial market that people want to see them. Are TDF sensory friendly kind of hygiene sensory friendly? So with more accommodations, house on, house lights on, um, very big disabled and autistic affinity space for families and, and um, autistic people, et cetera, um, sold out, right? I think it's this Sunday or something matinee, right? And so people feel really seen. I've been reading on Twitter, um, a couple other people more than me, because I stay out of the comments and stuff, but have been saying how much it really meant to them and that they've been hearing about it. And um, because people sometimes are often skeptical in the disability community about stories because so many stories have not been authentic or that great. But when people came and saw our show, um, they more or less really loved it and loved that it was like focused on the autistic joy and um, the great songs and um, uh, triumphs of the autistic community. As Ashley Wool said in another interview, it's like we show in our, sh we show in our musical that um, autistic success um, is not in spite of, um, you know, it's not in spite of being autistic, it's a yes and. Um, it's also a fun pun on like improv, yes and. Um, and um, and that's what um, so many of our community, um, including myself, wanted to see. Um, and and they get it when they come and see it. Um, and people who are not disabled but no disabled people also come and see it and like get it. Um, and I think um, it'll it'll continue living on even if it's just through the cast recording and people talking about it um, and also seeing the original documentary um or possibly other ways who knows right um but um it definitely made um waves in the disability community of another great um representation and also um hopefully like um launched the careers of our um onstage actors as well i have one more question and i know i said that was the last question but i have one last one and it's That's more good, about yeah. it's it's kind of a two-part question i'm just curious on if there's anything you're doing you know what you're kind of doing next any exciting projects you're working on but also i'm wondering how this experience might have made you rethink what, what directions you might want to go you might want to go in in terms of this kind of work that's a good question um another good another cool project that i'm working on is i'm a writer for this pbs and upcoming pbs animated kids series called carl the collector which um also features neurodiverse characters um i actually got that from um heard about it through someone in the musical so um yeah and um i've written about like four or five scripts thus far and it's also a really amazing team um and really fun because um tv writing um is something that i want to do i hope to also move into tv writing in the like live action ya space a little bit like of never have i ever um and things like that um but i it's really my more or less first tv writing gig and i'm really excited about it um in terms of other projects i'm not quite sure um you know things uh i always am um i lost my train of thought um but uh yeah so far how to dance in ohio has been the uh, most exciting project um in addition to carl the collector and um who knows where it'll go and i've met so many amazing people that um We'll also have projects and who knows might work together again so um yeah great thanks again ava you have a great Thank night you. thanks and have really to wonderful i can't oh my god i can't wait <laughs> yeah. all right thank you so much ava. have a good night thanks
Thank you so much for checking this out. Again, if you check out our page, Vintage Analyst Archive, we have a Building Momentum page, which has more information on the show and everyone involved that was part of the podcast. Again, please share as much as you can. Uh, I do this really for the love. I don't really make any money at this, and I do spend money, and I'm happy to do that. Um, but any 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 sharing um, of our podcast can be really helpful. And again, make sure to check out upcoming episodes. We'll have about... Uh, six or so uploaded by February 12th and then another three or four over the week. And then we're adding a few more, but most of these will be out by mid, I would say by the third week of February. And then, you know, depending on what happens next, we'll be documenting more and more of it. Um, and again, again, one more last thank you to Sammy Canold, the director really went out of the way to help me out with this process as well as Raymond Esposito, one of the producers really, um, helping out. This was my first really, attempt to document a document interview people on an active musical and uh, it's very different from working in film or music it's a whole different process and those folks really were helpful and helped me figure it out and also thank you to uh, uh arthur Ar- 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 castro my editor who stepped this game up um we once we found that it was being closed i really wanted to have this stuff out by around the time it closed because I wanted people to understand what everybody went through and how important it was. And I want to thank again all our guests who spent time with me. It was a pleasure meeting all of them. So again, thank you. Take care. We thought in different ways. Look around the world today. Richie, I love you.